2: Welcome back to Batforce Radio, the Batman and DC Comics podcast with no limits. Tonight we are taking once more a trip beyond the borders of Gotham City. And let's take a quick look at tonight's roundtable, the Bat Force Times in New York. And myself, I'm Robin Cross in Canada. And tonight's guest is a multifaceted, award-winning creator with numerous credits as a screen and comic writer, director, executive producer, and much more whose work you'll likely have seen on titles like Netflix Umbrella Academy, NBC's Blindspot, Stargate SG-1, The Relic Hunter, and Due South, if you're Canadian. <laughs> so welcome to the show for the first time, Mr. Jeff
1: King. Woo! Yes. Thank you. Very happy to be here with you. Oh, Thank you so
2: nice. much for taking the time to do this. Uh, I have been bothering you to no end uh, since l- uh, mid to late last year. <laughs>
1: I, I, I'm glad our uh, schedules have finally sunk up. You mm. wouldn't think between uh, three enterprising people it would be this hard to do, but uh, uh, I'm glad we uh, found the time tonight.
2: Absolutely, and you, you've you been uber busy lately, so uh, I know you recently uh, wrapped on not only on the second season of Umbrella Academy, but uh, also one or two other uh, shows I think you wrapped on.
1: Um, Umbrella Academy has been my uh, primary focus for, uh, the last, almost the last three years, it seems pretty mm. remarkable that, um, uh, my involvement at least began, uh, in, uh, November of 2017. But that's, um, that's in part due to the, uh, amount of time that we take to make these big, beautiful Netflix, uh, entertainments. Mm. And, um, Uh, I wish I could say I had time for a lot else uh, in between seasons, but um, this has really been a full-time labor of love for me and for many others. But uh, uh, for those of us who are in pre-production and production and uh, post-production, it's a long time scale.
2: And uh, it, it has to be rewarding that you're dedicating so much of your time to something that is as well-received and uh, as widely viewed as Umbrella Academy has been.
1: Yes. Um, the fan reaction to the show uh, has been lovely. Um, we are... Uh, thank you for uh, <laughs> for uh, leading leading the witness. Um, we're one of Netflix's most watched shows, and we're also a series that is watched by uh, a really broad spectrum of the Netflix membership. So whether you're old or young, whether you're uh, male or female, or whether you are anywhere in between old and young or male and female, you um, likely watched our show and enjoyed it. And um, uh, to be able to have that reaction from an audience is incredibly gratifying. And I've been lucky to have it uh, in the past on some things I've worked on. And uh, it's a very precious uh, attention that you get when people connect with your characters. And so we're deeply grateful for the fans that we have and the audience that we have on this particular show. And Netflix did a terrific job of getting uh, people's attention in our ever more cluttered universe to come and take a look at the Umbrella Academy, and um, uh, between uh, Netflix and uh, Universal Content, uh, our studio, uh, they did a terrific job of getting Steve Blackman's vision out there.
2: Mm. And uh, Umbrella Academy is one of those unique properties in that, obviously, it, it originates from the comic book series, so you... By bringing this to life, you draw from not only the standard comic audiences, standard Netflix audiences that would gravitate towards uh, viewing something like this, uh, but also because of the source material and the fan base that Gerard Way also brings with him. That's a very unique uh, combination of audiences. Uh,
1: it, it is absolutely Um the uh, uh, I I, the, I don't think this will be a spoiler. Uh, Gerard was actually just in our office today uh, to meet with uh, uh, Steve uh, to meet with Steve and I, and um, the graphic novel uh, that Gerard and Gabrielle Ba uh, created together is absolutely bonkers, um, yeah. full of big, gorgeous, lovely ideas and art and visual landscapes. Um, in, you know, spanning the three volumes that are that exist and the fourth that's coming. And so distilling and translating them into a visual universe that is in different media with uh, different kind of characters and a, uh, its own sensibility um, is something that you don't undertake lightly and um, uh, was the product of a lot of uh, a lot of brains and a lot of consultation, um, but having it as the springboard and having Gerard's uh, consistent uh, support and participation, and all the different audiences that are connected to comics and graphic novels, the art of Gabrielle Baugh, Gerard Way, Steve Blackman, and then our amazing cast. Um, and the big appetite there is for stories about family. And especially dysfunctional, subversive, fucked up ones. Can we? Can I curse on this show?
2: <laughs> Fuck it, curse away. Yeah. All <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> woof, woof, that was almost a button press. <laughs> uh, because
1: because we don't. Uh, so so that's um, you know that's a uh, uh, that that trans the the translation from. Uh, the page to screen, the page to the stage, is a whole nother process of adaptation um, that went, you know, went through in in the case of Umbrella Academy, went through quite a long development process. First as a feature film, and then later as a as a few different stabs at a TV series until Steve finally uh, finally cracked the code, and um, uh, you know, when when somebody like Ellen Page. Uh, signs on to your project and and gives you the faith and the talent that she brings, and then, you know, between Tom and David and Emmy and Robert and and Aiden and Justin, um, you know, it's uh, that that all that momentum just just uh, picks up.
2: Mm. Now uh, you you spoke about the uh, the source material, the the art of Gabriel Ba everything, and I something that I've wondered. Uh, when looking at how everything came from the comics, because Gabriel's art style and design of the characters and the world is so stylized and so unreal, uh, it seems that that would have left a lot of room for interpretation uh, to the adaptation of live-action versions. Uh, Were you a part of that process? And how much could you tell about how that process went of deciding what everything was going to look like? Because... the way the characters look on the page you you can't make them look like that in live action
1: yeah or or if you did it would be in a in a much more hyper realized take than the one that we are presenting here in is another way to say it um i i came to the project uh relatively close to the start of production of season one so a lot of um, big picture decisions were already underway, to which I, you know, became a party as as I became involved. Um, the you know, I think what was what was important to uh, to Steve in sort of framing the world was to um, create characters that were grounded, um, to have uh, a family that you and I could relate to, to um, tell a story in a visual language that would be accessible to people who were both fans of things that fall into a uh, you know into a superhero genre, but also to people who might never have encountered the graphic novel or, otherwise been interested in a superhero show. And so that um you know the process of evolution really kicked off once you cast the actors and you see what they look like and how those physical types will adapt to um uh adapt to the their analogs in the comic books. And for example, you know, to do something like um, Gustav Eiffel uh, which is the big, you know, g- gorgeous set piece of the of the beginning of the first uh, volume, would be so such an enormous so resource heavy, such a big thing for us to do, even on you know even on a premium Netflix uh, streaming show that I think Steve wisely made the decision to focus on the family dynamic first and foremost, and then for us to explore how. Uh, how the the superhero superpowered aspect of the family um, played into who they had become when they came back together on the occasion of their father's death because that's what was really interesting in the storytelling so you know you have all these great inspirations and and I think if you go through the the 10 episode first season you will see a lot of um, either, you know, direct connections to some of the, the, some of the, uh, gorgeous moments in the comics or things that are inspired by them. But part of, uh, you know, the, the choice for the show and something that Gerard and Gabrielle, uh, supported was for us to leave the page and, um, Uh, You know, reinvent the characters and the world in a way that we could tell the kind of story we're trying to tell.
2: And uh, one thing that uh, I think was remarkable was how well the first season did distill down uh, and focus on sort of maybe the word I'm looking for is the most essential parts of Apocalypse Suite. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, made it into something that could be a cohesive season long story.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, again, you, you, when, when you're world building, you make choices and when you're telling a story, you make choices. And I think, um, you know, the, the transformation of, of Vanya into the white violin in Apocalypse Suite, the graphic novel is a much different journey than the one that we put, um, Vanya on, uh, in the series. But, um, the, uh, the inspiration was generally the same. Um, uh, a, a, you know, taking on her character as as kind of the 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 blackest sheep of a family of black sheep, the outsider, the person who was vulnerable to their connection to that family, and how that all sort of uh, filtered into. The storytelling, again, inspired by the graphic novel in all its ways, but told in a very different way. So, you know, so that's really I think that um, those decisions got us to the same uh, place, but in a different way. And I think that was part of the smartness of it all.
2: And uh, coupled that with uh, some of the ways that uh, you and the people on uh, the production came up with bringing everything to life. I saw a video that you posted a while back uh, of the how you shot uh, Vanya's sort of crescendo uh, with you know the the camera setup that you had with the cameras uh, rotating around her at a high speed.
1: Oh, oh, sure. yeah, yeah.
2: yeah, so that was really impressive. and uh, it, really uh brought everything to life in a way that did it really did it Justin.
1: i haven't um you know that uh haven't spoken yet about uh, our magnificent uh behind the scenes team the production designers uh, mark worthington and mark Steele, and the decorator jim Lambie. we have a, an extraordinary costume designer chris hargaden and, and our dps Neville Kidd and, and Craig Robleski and their teams, but uh, Everett Burrell, who's our visual effects uh, supervisor and one of our producers and close collaborators, um, he and his teams and all the vendors who provide uh, visual effects for a spin, especially in Toronto, but also Weta um, in New Zealand, who, who uh, uh, delivered Pogo to us, really made um, really, elevate the world in a lot of ways. and um, mm. so much of the work that they do um, is invisible to make you believe that this extraordinary world um, uh, really does exist, even though it doesn't. and and a, a great example of that. I mean, Pogo is certainly something that's obvious. and and in the series, um on on our set, we have an actor named uh, Ken Hall, who plays uh, Pogo for all the other actors. And he comes in and wears the gray suit and uh, uh, plays the scene with the actor, just as if he was Pogo. And then Weta replaces him digitally with that amazing uh, CG uh, chimp that you see. And he's voiced by Adam Godley, who coincidentally, um, when Ken and Adam finally met, Ken is um uh, short of stature as uh, is pogo and adam is the tallest guy in the company aside from uh, um aside from tom hopper so um uh, you know one is the one is the actor who plays and one is the voice but um the you know the uh the story of the of the apocalypse suite of our, the story of our first volume of the umbrella academy series takes place over 10 days and um, we shoot it over a period of six to seven months. Uh, So for example, the seasons changed. So in order to um, create the impression in your eye that um, only a day has passed instead of weeks or a month, um, Everett and his team, for example, put uh, green leaves on literally thousands if not hundreds of thousands of leaves on trees in the wow. background shots so that when we transition from one moment to another, you, uh, have the experience of, um, you know, being in the moment as opposed to, um, the seasons bouncing back and forth, for example, um, uh, the colors of things, the shapes of things, what they look like. So, um, that's a very powerful resource. And a lot of those things are deployed to make environments feel more real, as opposed to making them fantastical, like in the graphic novels. Not that we don't love the the fantastical universe that, you know, especially that's in Gerard's mind and Gabrielle's under his pen. But um, you know, some of those are so fantastical that uh, that we really have to, um, you know, tell the story in more subversive, uh, smaller ways.
2: So when we're seeing a, a scene in the series that is shot on a, a desolate highway in the middle of nowhere, it may not necessarily be the warm summer day that it appears to be.
1: Uh, to often, the, as the actors will tell you, often it is not. So you know we're we're constantly asking people to stand out in shirt sleeves and mm-hmm. and uh, no shoes and uh, open collars and. All those things that, um, when we started shooting in the in the summer, might have felt like a good idea, but when we get to the fall, uh, seem like a terrible miscalculation. <laughs> um, because uh, you know, because we're shooting in Toronto, in Canada, we're in a four season a uh, uh, part of the world, um
2: Four uh, seasons within two weeks.
1: <laughs> went, and we've, we've had all of those things as well. So, uh, so that, that's... But that's also part of it.
0: How Im- important is it to, when developing a series like this, to consider about how much source material is extracted from the books to apply to the show with the uh, potential of moving on to another season... Because I see we, there's a lot of talk about how... I think, Robin, you mentioned this as well with Lock and Key just coming out where mm-hmm. they've used a lot of source material in the first season. Yeah. And yeah. now things have to change once the second season is green. Like, how conscious is like everyone of this when going into such a big project?
1: It's That's a really good question. Um, you're definitely conscious of uh, the source material. And, of course, we when we started, there were two uh, books existing and Gerard and Gabrielle had shared with us what they were doing in the third book. And we, in turn, shared with them what we were doing in the first season and then subsequently what we've been doing in the second. And they're already working on the fourth. So they're, you know, they're staying ahead of us. Um, We used, uh, Steve used... Uh, a fair bit of, uh, you know, the Apocalypse Suite, obviously, and we cherry picked a few things from Dallas, um, like the larger roles of Hazel and Chacha cha that um, really served the first season. So it, it's actually pretty lovely to be able to cherry pick from a, a deep well of ideas, the things that serve your storytelling and really work best um uh but we're mindful that we would love to uh stay within the uh sandbox as it's created going forward in the books and i we're certainly um you know it's um uh, it's also something that uh, i think gerard and and gabrielle are mindful of too is uh uh, staying ahead of
2: us now. Uh, talking about the that effect, like them making an effort to stay ahead of you, uh, it, it's just sprung to my mind just now. Uh, what possible effect the popularity of the series and possibly of particular characters could potentially lead to influence uh, future source material that they create? Uh, you mentioned Hazel and Cha Cha, and. The iteration of Hazel and Cha-Cha in the, in the series, in, in the live action series, is maybe even more enjoyable than, than in the source material. Just the chemistry and the enjoyment of watching those, those two actors, uh, how they brought it to life. Uh, since the show came out, uh, Hazel and Cha-Cha had a one-shot comic uh yeah. come out that was you know just a a special mm-hmm. so that's uh that's interesting i wonder how much uh things could affect like that like you know that popularity the reception of particular characters could lead to demand for more uh of those characters
1: well a perfect example uh, i think uh i think this has been announced uh dark horse and uh uh the guys just announced a uh, a Klaus spin-off comic. So it's going to be, I think it's it's uh, at least a six issue uh, story and maybe longer. Um, uh, and it's the, you know, while the comic universe is the comic universe and the TV series universe is the TV series universe, they do sort of coexist and co-interact with each other. So, you know, no spoilers, I can't say exactly what the guys are going to do, but we have a sense of it. And, um, uh, you know, uh, again, cherry, we'll cherry pick uh, whatever great ideas are there. And, and yeah, Gerard and Gabrielle are very supportive of that. I mean, they encourage us to, um, you know, to uh, approach the source material that way. Liberating. You know, not not everybody has that experience.
2: Uh, now, uh, rightly so, we've been speaking a lot about uh, Umbrella Academy and uh, how everything was done right. Like another example of how everything was done right was the time period that Umbrella Academy came to Netflix. It it wasn't without competition. Uh, unfortunately, not everything can can carry on and you'll know, be successful enough to move forward. But uh, the fact that Umbrella Academy came out in the same time frame as uh, things like Deadly Class and, you know, proved to be the one that... Uh, Deadly Class was uh, was pretty close and yeah. something else, too.
0: Yeah, there was something else I can't remember.
1: I well, think t- one of... Titans Titans, and Doom Patrol, we all sort of
0: are clustered around yeah. the same yeah, time. Yeah, Doom Patrol as well, right after. I have not seen a stronger cast than Umbrella Academy, though. I mean, we're talking Robert Sheenan, who I absolutely loved in misfits that british show mm. and um mm-hmm. obviously page and kate walsh who's an easy show stealer and mary <laughs> yeah. j effin Blyde, right. and who exactly. just owns that role of Chacha. it's uh, it, the casting is brilliant and really and yep. the way they all come together these different they're like different components into this you know woven into this amazing series so far it's i think um i think that's why it's been getting, you know, you know, just one of many things, but I—that's—it's a big appeal to so many people. Is how everyone has yeah. their own slot, you know, carved into.
1: Every everybody is strong. Um, we, you know, we got blessed with so many people. I mean, Cameron, Britton, you know, coming off of uh, Mine Hunter, and and uh, John Magaro from the Big Short, who, uh, you know, who played Leonard Peabody, which is such a, a tough. You know, such a, a demanding role, and and uh, you know, an actor who needed to be able to stand in with Ellen Page and you know, uh, uh, punch at the same weight, which he which he did. Uh, but then, you know, Calm Fjord playing uh, yeah. Hargreaves. I mean, that was such an incredible get for us. Um, uh, it was, you know, it was just, very
2: cool to see Coleman there, especially. Uh, I don't think he's. I don't think he's originally Canadian, but I know that uh, now he lives just a few hours away from me here. Uh, I, I believe he still lives in Stratford.
1: He he sure does. He yeah. uh, he lives in Stratford, and and is such a vibrant part of uh, you know the Canadian uh, cultural industry scene. And he's going to do some great theater this year, and. Um, You know, uh, uh, Sheila McCarthy, who played Agnes, I mean, a a wonderful Toronto actress who, you know, took that role that that started as, uh, uh, you know, something that uh, could have not been very interesting and made it extraordinary. Um, Jordan Robbins, who plays uh, Grace and then all the kid actors. I mean, the kids were all the kid actors were amazing
2: i saw a video of aiden gallagher doing the i don't know what it was like maybe some form of uh, like an ama but he was doing uh video calls with fans and it's the <laughs> series of girls losing their shit when he comes on the screen it was ridiculous
1: <laughs> yeah i mean he you know a and aiden aiden is uh multi-talent he's a, yeah. a musician a- and band. uh you know, uh, uh, truly uh, coming of age in a pretty extraordinary uh, moment in time, mm. and also the world's you know youngest ambassador to the United Nations for the environment. Yes. So, um, you know, does will this boy stop at nothing?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, incredibly talented uh, young young man, and um, uh, you know, incredibly prepared on set. Uh, he's a delight to direct um they all are really all incredibly uh talented and incredibly mm. giving uh, and supportive of each other so um you know that's as you you know to your point um it's really what you you write a script and you create characters on paper but there a whole nother iteration of that writing happens once the actors start to inhabit the characters and mm. speak and move and then that's when you really see them Mm -hmm. and one of the beautiful things about doing a 10 hour uh you know a 10 hour single story really tell a 10 hour movie Mm. is that you get to discover along with the actors their characters and what people's strengths are and how they play off each other and what they look like together so part of the the you know the The beauty of um of a big supportive organization like like netflix is that you know we'll occasionally we'll go back and reshoot something if we discover a better way to tell the story or that we missed an opportunity the first
0: time through that's what i love about netflix is that uh this is—it's a big chance in a way because this is not cheap. <laughs> like looking at everything, it's this is big budget, but ten hours, ten hours with all this talent is just ten to adapt it so effectively and accurately. It's just that's that's why I love when they take chances and they hit their mark. You know, every with all the talent they're bringing in and people like you who really bring it to life. And uh, can, can you take us, uh, you know, a day in the life of Jeff King on set or working in the office or whatever it is and tell us what it's like.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, um, once, uh, once we start to shoot, uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, go to Toronto and spend, uh, the whole season or almost the whole season, uh, on location in Toronto while we shoot. And, um, uh, a lot of what I do is uh, working uh, in prep to take the scripts that have been written and work with all the with the director, the directors of photography, the production designer, the team there in Toronto, our producers and uh, translate it visually into the episodes that we shoot each week with, an, with also an eye to uh, what will be the most effective way to tell the story visually and also in a pragmatically producible and financially responsible way. Um, so it's really kind of multifaceted and sometimes... Uh, that will mean, you know, getting up at four in the morning to get to set uh, an hour outside of Toronto in enough time to be in a makeup trailer to see whether a wig's going to fit, or to greet a new actor who's just starting, or to talk with um, somebody from the makeup or hair team. And they're really the unsung heroes because they're the ones that start every day hours and hours before the rest of the crew comes. Um, and then, uh, you know, I might spend a couple of hours on, uh, on set as we shoot the uh, first scenes of, of the day, talk with the director, or the DP to, uh, make sure the plan that we've got is followable and then, uh, maybe, uh, leave and join up with the location scout with the production designer and the location team and the prepping director uh, to, um, uh, go find the locations that an episode will call for, or, uh, go and walk a set that's being built, um, duck into costumes, uh, maybe talk with one of the actors if there's an issue relating to, uh, a scene that's coming up or something that we need to do for the stunt team or the uh, physical effects team because there are a lot of long lead things, things that have to be conceptualized and built and or um, uh, location scouted. You know, if if we if we're going to be shooting somewhere that we know uh, is going to need a road and a dug to get to it, and there isn't a road there, for that's just for an example, then uh, you need to start planning months in advance to to get that road built. For example, so. There, there are uh, a lot of strategic and planning things. But then uh, another day might be, um, uh, you know, be showing up at uh, uh, four in the afternoon to direct a stunt sequence overnight, or something in a second unit, or um, uh, you know. So it the the hours in the day will change pretty radically. And the responsibilities might change pretty radically, but overall, it's uh, it's to executive produce the show and be there to uh, uh, to make sure that we uh, follow Steve's vision and get the best uh, version of every script that is written.
0: Wow! So you're the, you're the, one of the reasons why the show is as good as it is. So I definitely mm-hmm. thank you for that. And uh, and on behalf of my old lady, she wanted me to. Thank You personally, because Umbrella Academy is her favorite show on Netflix. And, oh, uh, dang, yeah, that's she, awesome! Yeah, she can't wait for season two, and uh, yeah, so she wanted me to say that. So.
1: Well, please, please tell her we can't wait for her to see it either. It's uh, it's pretty bonkers, and um, I think uh, I think we that we've uh, hopefully, knocking on wood, we've outdone ourselves. So nice.
2: Uh, as, as far as i've seen i believe we're still waiting on the announcement of the season two release date correct
1: yes correct it has not been announced
2: mm. but but you probably already have an idea <laughs> uh
1: i cannot confirm or deny oh. w- wink, I just,
2: uh, <laughs> w-
0: wink twice
1: <laughs> yes, this is not a video call um uh you know, that uh, that um, those decisions rest primarily with uh, Netflix and they're driven or, in fact, entirely with Netflix. Mm. And we have such confidence in their ability to make the right choice and then to uh, get the word out to the people that uh, uh, whatever date they choose, we're, we know we're going to be very happy
2: with. So you're in this life where you're in the midst of. Uh, an integral part of all of these massive productions on things f- spanning a long period of time now. You, you've been, you been, you're not new to this. Mm. Uh, so you, you grow up in Canada and how does this life find you or vice versa? Mm.
1: Wow. Um, well, uh, I started, uh, I started off doing uh, craft service on low budget, independent, uh, feature films in Toronto.
2: If um, you're talking about porns, you can just tell us you mean porn. It was, uh, <laughs> uh,
1: I, I, even, even if it was, it would have been polite because it was in, uh, Canada. I um, know <laughs> uh, it was. Uh, yes,
2: we, we was, make a clean pornography.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this was, um, uh, it wasn't. And, um, uh, but it was, uh, super low budget. It was non-union, uh, I'm I was uh, uh, going to the U- University of Toronto I was working out at the gym I needed a summer job met a guy uh, fell to talk you know you, you go to a gym everybody goes at the same time and you see the same people so we fell to talking it turned out he was a film producer and had a film coming up and I said that wow that sounds really cool and I need a summer job and I uh, I said you know god to to try out an uh, industry like that, I would, you know, I'd do it for free to get my foot in the door. And as soon as I said free, he said, uh, hold on. And he went to his bag and he got, he said, here's my, he said, call my guy. So he gave me the number. And so I, I, um, uh, I did craft service, which was coffee and sandwiches. It was a little more simple than, than we do craft service for the cast and crew these days. Um, but, uh, I had been, uh, doing, a, a, a business degree and, um, was uh, on the side. I was kind of a bad poet and a bad playwright. And, um, in the middle of this movie there, the accountant quit and, um, uh, you know, was, they were having a little trouble keeping the financing going and the checks wouldn't always show up on Fridays to pay the crew. And I learned a lot about, uh, the business but when the accountant quit, I said, "Well, I know how to do books. I mean, I'm, that's what I'm learning to do. And if you need some, somebody to do that for a few days until you can get a new person settled in, I, you know I can I could do that. And the guy said, "Wait here and brought me back the, the banker's box with the receipts and and all the ledgers and stuff. And I looked at it and I said, this, you know, if this is the bar to entry, I'm going to be fine. And um, because it was not very sophisticated, it was certainly something that my talents at the time could handle. Um, and so I, I became, a, a, you know, like, a, I started working my way up as kind of an assistant to a production manager and learned a lot about that part of the business, but learned about budgets and how to book a crew and, you know, how to make things and how things worked. And because it was non-union I could spend time on the set seeing what people did so I you know after my job was done I could do just about any job that I volunteered to do and so I learned a lot about being around the camera and how things worked and I got lucky I had a few great mentors uh, Robert Lantos who was the the sort of the creative spark and the chairman of uh, of uh, Alliance Atlantis and its progenitor companies and through him I met uh, a New York cop named Sonny Grosso, who God rest him, just passed. But he brought a real uh, American style of television production to Toronto for the first time. And I got lucky, wound up producing uh, a series for him. Uh, and then met uh, Paul Haggis, who was another uh, great mentor of mine. And, and with Paul, um, uh, when we were doing Due South, he very graciously offered to write an episode with me. Uh, after we produced the pilot together and when the show got picked up, um, he was good to his word and we wrote it. And, um, that, uh, started my career, uh, as a, a writer in television. And, um, you know, that, le- that led me on to, um, uh, on to work with, uh, a lot of other really incredible people, um. Uh, but it was, it were, it was that founding experience working in television in Canada, uh, that, uh, gave me the foundation that I, I use now to do what I do on umbrella.
2: And, uh, outside of the television stuff, uh, we did also, oh man, what was this? Uh, maybe five, six years ago ish, uh, you did delve into DC comics and, uh, did a comic for for dc
1: i did i was very fortunate uh that uh, uh dan and jim at uh, dc gave me the opportunity to uh write uh on convergence which was a uh, uh you know an event series that wrapped up um, the world's end and and uh, future's end of the and bringing the new fifty two to a close. And I had been a comic kid growing up, uh, always fascinated with them. Had been on and off talking to both Marvel and and DC about opportunities in in comics, and uh, just got extremely lucky to be. Uh, given the opportunity to jump in uh, to the deep end of a very fast-moving, a very fast-moving uh, fast uh, series that was being put together over there, uh, had an incredible time. Um, worked with some extraordinary artists, some some other great writers, uh, and um, that gave me the opportunity to uh, spin off and write another book. Uh, that followed out of Convergence called uh, Telos and gave me the opportunity to uh, do a Guardians of the Galaxy story for Marvel. And um, most importantly, uh, you know, introduced me to uh, people like Mark Andrejko, uh and gave me the opportunity to write a, a, a story for the Love is Love um, yeah. memorial book. Um, that, um, uh, commemorated the, uh, the victims and survivors of the club pulse tragedy. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that if you had told me as a common kid growing up that I would ever have the chance to, you know, work with any of these, uh, people or stand on the shoulders of giants, like mm-hmm. Jeff Lamar and Brian Nazarello and, and all the others, I would have, I wouldn't have believed you. So, uh, it, it was a pretty extraordinary opportunity.
2: Uh, is that something you could see yourself returning to, uh, jumping back into the world of, uh, of comic writing? Uh,
1: yes. Yes. I could see myself doing that again. Um, I think I still have some stories that I would like to tell in comic book form and I do explore those from time to time. Um, you know, so much of it is finding the right artist and finding the right time to tell it. But, um, yeah, I love comics. I, uh. You know, as um, uh, Convergence was a huge challenge for everybody involved, including me, in a, a big learning experience. Um, uh, so I, you know, I, I, I would, um, uh, I'm definitely not done.
2: Oh, good, good. And uh, maybe with uh, the existence of things like Netflix here, maybe we'll even see the day that you get to uh, bring to life uh, something that you've written uh, for comics. Mm.
1: Yeah, um, uh, you know, the uh, convergence of media and storytelling uh, is going at a furious pace. Mm, I see what and, you did
0: there. <laughs> 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 I, I got that too. There you go. I, that's
1: my one. And, uh, the uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I look at, um, uh, you know, the people who are coming before me like... Um, uh, you know Mark, Mark Miller and and you know Frank Miller and mm. um, uh, Jeff Lemire and you know people whose universes and whose world building, you know Greg Rucka, who are you know whoever, uh, Joel Jones. All of them are um, creating these big, gorgeous, incredible universes, and, and the entertainment industry, the filmed entertainment industry is finding them and saying wow i mean there's an almost insatiable appetite for good storytelling and comics as a visual medium are sort of to literature uh which traditionally has been where adaptation has uh has been drawn from you know comics are like poetry Mm -hmm. You you, you have to you you need to be so much more efficient in how you tell the story and so much more distilled that in the in the space that you can, you know, boil down a a 300 or 1000 page novel, um, a uh, 20 or 40 or 90 page comic or graphic novel has so much more rich information in it Mm. uh, to draw from that, uh, you know, it's um it's definitely the future
2: yeah it, it's great to see the difference in the way that comics are now looked upon from what i remember when i was a kid yeah. uh i remember being a kid and you know, if if i was reading comics and you know uh, i remember one day specifically my grandmother telling my grandmother i was reading when she asked what i was doing and she asked what i was reading and i showed her and she goes oh you're reading a comic book you know as if <laughs> to say that that's not real reading and fast forward to now, uh, where I live here in Windsor, there's a professor named Dale Jacobs who uh, works at the University of Windsor, and he teaches a comic book course. And yeah. uh, not only does it revolve around reading, you know, some some key uh, significant comics, things like Watchmen, but uh, part of the course is also that the students uh, come to the shop, I work at a shop in downtown Windsor, and that, by the way, is Rogues Gallery Comics in Windsor, Ontario. Uh, it's in the area, general area of of the university. So part of the course is that they choose a monthly comic book and open a file to read that book monthly. So p- to to get the comic book collecting experience. Yep.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's a uh, uh, a that's genius, and B, um, uh, you know it literature has so many traditions, um, and I think graphic literature is only getting more relevant, not less relevant, because it more closely resembles people's day-to-day experience now. Mm. I mean, we're we're constantly sifting through visual media, um, uptaking in very quick bites, uh, a visual, uh, mm. you know, some... Uh, you know, maybe a few balloons or a few bubbles worth of words, but not a lot and ascribing or drawing from those images and and juxtaposition of words, a lot of meaning. Hmm. So it, I think the timeliness of of like that kind of teaching and the, you know, the art uh, of picking the most significant visual to tell a story is again it's it's getting more and more paramount um Mm -hmm. because of how clearly and how quickly people's attention needs to be grabbed or it will move on to the next bold image or uh you know profound uh soundbite
0: yeah the um there's testimonials with the new generation too that uh comic books or graphic novels are uh very therapeutic and terms of their anxiety because it's not just like reading a novel where you have to use your imagination but you are processing you are reading a story and processing visual information at the same time with a comic book so I always I thought that was very interesting as well to think about uh, uh yeah. it, it's place now in, in the society you know and how and
1: the, it's art, a, the art of composition and drawing the eye and the you know the work of colorists and mm. and Mm. and letters and you know the way some artists light their scenes and I mean that's that's all so key to storytelling and it has a lot of really d- direct analogs and what we do at our end mm. so um you know not that you would ever want to do a television series or a movie as a direct frame by frame extrapolation of of a comic book but um you know the it, it's why like for example an umbrella you could have some set pieces that almost could be designed uh, frame by frame. Yeah. Um, you know the other thing is I this one one of the things I learned um, doing uh, doing convergence was when I first started. And again, you know I hate to sound like a like a, a noob, but um, I. I you know, I'd, I had written a lot of screenplays and I said, how long should a comic script be? And I hadn't really, you know, I was just starting to do the research and, um, I, I got the information and wrote, a uh, you know, wrote a couple of scripts and, um, uh, Darwin cook was, uh, wow. was involved at the time. And, um, uh, he, I, you know, uh, Dan and Jim were very kind and shared some notes back <laughs> that mm. Darwin had given them, and basically said, "This guy just wrote you a 200-page comic book," <laughs> be- because, <laughs> because I was writing a lot of of assumed transitional movement and emotional mm. uh, steps that you can do in a in a television or movie script mm. because you're asking an actor to take up an emotional journey and you can in your head, rely on the camera to photograph the whole thing. If you want, you know, the camera can follow the actor and get closer and further away and, and be obscured for a moment and do all those things. A comic, you have to give an artist a very different framework for, uh, conveying emotion. And so, you know that's part of it too is understanding the visual language of comics is a, is a real art mm. and the the people who do it well and especially the artists who are, are you know really great storytellers mm. um uh you know are so important to the process it's beyond words
0: mm. i think that's it's so good that with all your experience uh is really beneficial because what you're what you've done in your job is so important because The way you've adapted *Umbrella Academy* is as good as it gets. Like you've overseen all of this, and it's the adaptation is so good that I think it sets the bar for uh, for the way people need to adapt this uh, the genre of comic books or graphic novels onto like movies or episode runs.
1: I mean, I I really appreciate you saying that, and I do you know again just to. The, the, the crazy thing about comics is, well, you, you need a great editor and you have a great team. You know, the, the relationship of the writer and the artist is really the kind of binary that winds up driving a lot of the, the storytelling. Whereas in what we do, you know, it's, it's hundreds of people and that, the actor plays a role. But what it really comes down to is the, is the vision that Steve Blackman brought to it. By in treating it as a story to be told first, mm. and allowing us to take the, you know, the the comic elements and and pre- present them and treat them visually in a really powerful way, and, and great directors. We had a guy, uh, Peter Hoare directed our um, uh, directed our pilot and our finale in season one, mm. and, and extremely skilled very generous director and and really lovely hand with the cast and their performances and Mm. um, so all of that you know all of that really comes together to um, you know to 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 tell a great story and I you know I've been lucky I mean I've uh, been on the ground at the beginning of um a lot of really cool and interesting world building like stargate sg1 was a perfect example Mm -hmm. um you know being there in the first season with brad wright and john glasner and seeing what they were doing and robert cooper who was you know kind of the baby writer in that first season um and you know more recent work like continuum which is a show i'm extremely proud of that um, i did with simon berry for Mm sci-fi um and that really um, allowed me to tell a lot of stories about what I feel are real contemporary issues that we still are grappling with, like, like classism and the, in, the way income inequality defines so much of how we live in a modern world and the way that um, the lack of personal responsibility of corporate behavior ultimately is a, is a terrible thing that we have to harness somehow but again it was first and foremost the story about uh, uh a wife and a mother who's torn away from her family and is doing everything she can to get back to them so it's like finding that human quality within a a bigger story that you want to tell important things about
0: do you feel that um these streaming series should be more of the way to go now with adapting the genre of comic books. Do you feel like it's a more effective way to go as opposed to like a a two hour budget movie?
1: I mean, if somebody, you know, the, um, if, if I could take all the money that we spend on 10 hours and only spend it on two Mm. or, or an hour and a half, I could give you a grander visual spectacle but I don't know that I could tell a better story and frankly if anything proves that out it's how extraordinary the sort of big arc of the story that Kevin Feige told in the in the Marvel Phase 1 or Phase 2 or whatever it is the you know the from Iron Man to uh to the most recent Avengers is a pretty extraordinary you know, 18 or 19 movie arc. Mm. Um, you know, and I would argue that in a way what what you get to do, whether it's what, you know, we're doing on Umbrella or what um, those geniuses did over on Watchmen, you know, mm-hmm. however you feel about the, the show, um, you know, what they do. We, we have a luxury that um, the teams who are doing you know, doing the flash or doing um, uh, you know some of those great shows that are on on the CW uh, don't have because we don't have commercial breaks. We can tell story that ends in one moment and picks up in the next moment and expect the you know the viewer's attention all the way through. Um, we we don't have to wait week to week to tell you our story. So um, you know uh, it's a it's an incredible gift uh, to be able to tell it in this format. And I think if you have a big vision and you have like a big movie story, that's too unwieldy to tell in 90 minutes, mm. um, you know, something like what we're doing on Netflix or, you know, what you can do on, um, on, uh, Hulu or Amazon or, you know, HBO or, you know, any of the competing services, it's definitely a way to go. I mean, the, yeah, uh, I the, and and creatively the experience with Netflix has been extraordinary I mean they are terrific creative partners I see how they work with Steve and I experience it myself mm. um, they're they're pretty amazing
0: that's awesome and before we let you get on out of the lightning round which
1: is I thought I was going to get out of here without <laughs> that but okay <laughs> yeah. All
0: right, number one New York style pizza or Chicago deep dish pizza
1: New York in a heartbeat. Right. Uh, raise or uh, raise uptown.
0: Okay. Second oh, Okay. You know, um, plain or peanut M and M's.
1: Wow.
2: Peanut. <laughs> <laughs> we we asked the hard hitting question too,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you. haven't noticed yet. <laughs> um, uh, my, my kids are gonna laugh. That took me a minute. <laughs> if
0: uh, <laughs> if you could have dinner with one human being who has lived throughout history, dead or alive, who would it be?
1: Shakespeare, because I'd like to find out who it really is.
0: Oh, yeah. good.
1: I want to. I want to know her name.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, look not at that. bad. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Wow, uh, rumor. What was the best piece of advice you ever received, and who gave it to you?
1: Um. Wow. Best piece of advice. Um,
0: or that you can remember. Uh,
1: I've received so many good ones. Um, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't even say I, um, I, here's, here's, I would, I would say, um, that piece of advice was do what scares you and always, always show up and Mm. be as generous as you can because you only get one opportunity to do this life.
0: And if you don't, you will miss out. Mm, Well said. And Robin, did you want to give him the uh, Donnie Cates uh, question?
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. So we had uh, Donnie Cates on the show a few weeks ago. And Donnie presented. So we have a tradition here where. Oh, we're going to spring another thing on you here. Uh, We have a tradition where uh, at the end of the lightning round, we ask the guest to provide a question of their own to be posed to the next guest. Uh, So Donnie Cates left us with a question that. he received via email for a podcast that he does with uh, artist Ryan Stegman. And okay. the question, he brought it to our show because it's such a profound question that they have been grappling with it since. Uh, I, I think Donnie wakes up in the middle of the night thinking about this question. So it uh, it went something like if two men were stranded on the moon and one man killed the other with a rock... Would that be fucked up?
1: Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Donnie goes into this whole wormhole of because you have to consider what, what's the context.
1: Yeah. I, I, te- nope. with respect, I'm telling Donnie, it's, <laughs> uh, it's. Uh, uh, do you know? what's the great zen master's <laughs> response do you not recognize what an orange looks
0: like
2: <laughs> yeah. ah. i'll be damned you just answered donnie's unanswerable question
0: yeah but then donnie was like well what if the other one was responsible and, for ending and the donnie party?
1: donnie is a donnie is a smart mother uh, a very smart person so i uh, <laughs> i don't take that challenge lightly <laughs> Well, the, and and uh, a terrific and a terrific writer and storyteller. So yeah. uh, I'm sure he got a much more interesting story than a one-word mm-hmm. answer.
2: <laughs> oh, that that nail that nailed it. you've uh, floored me by answering it so concisely and uh, and having uh, a quote to back it up. I'm yeah, convinced.
0: Yes. Did, um, do we know who the next guest might be for him
2: to give a? Uh, th- I don't have anything booked prior to todd McFarlane, but it could be anything in between but as of this moment we have to assume the next guest is todd McFarlane.
0: yeah so and uh, right. so if you have any questions to pass on that'd be fun
1: if you could if life is a series of choices and left and right hand turns if you could go back and change one of them what would it be
0: Mm-hmm. Oh man, whoa! <laughs> oh, that's a loaded question. I like that. I like that a lot.
2: That's a loaded one. That's a good one, right? Like, yeah,
0: bro. that might that sh- that might have to be in the permanent rotation. I like that one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that that
2: that goes right up there with uh, the Joey Lawrence question. Oh, the Joey.
0: Oh. <laughs> Want to give him the Joey Lawrence before we go? <laughs>
2: yeah, uh, I I love bringing this one up. Uh, what maybe oh, it's gotta be close to a year ago now. We had uh, Joey Lawrence, uh, the actor, on the show. Uh, so a little backstory to why he was on uh, an internet rumor had begun that uh following ben affleck uh joey lawrence wanted to be the next actor to play batman so in response to this rumor a bunch of his fans started up a, a petition for him to be the next batman so uh we had joey come on the show and plead his case to you know to the target audience of comic fans so, uh, Joey gave us a question, uh, which was, if you had the choice to live a long life uh, to the age of 100, living the life as a pauper, or live the life of a wealthy man, but only live to the age of 65, what would you choose?
1: Hmm... Um... That's a really good question. I would say, I would choose a longer life because, um, well, poor it doesn't a pa a pauper does not live an uninteresting life.
2: Mm. Mm. And I think
1: as long as long as you find purpose and find community in your life, then. And I should also say I would fully expect that health would would not be taken into the consideration, because yeah, uh, those last thirty five years might be pretty tough if you weren't <laughs> equipped with more mm. uh, health points than uh, our bodies are typically able to uh, handle. But, yeah, if if
2: those last thirty five years you're like a uh, Grandpa Joe in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory laid up in a bed, that's not going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, he, he only gets.
1: I, <laughs> I, I, re- I reserve. Quit. I, I reserve the right to change my mind uh, given, given circumstances.
2: But on the topic, I think that son of a bitch, Grandpa Joe, is the true villain of that movie because he spent years in that bed with Charlie and his mom taking care of him. And then when it's time to go to the chocolate factory, Grandpa Joe pops up out of that bed and does a dance. And uh, here we go. Yeah. Well, where were you, uh, you know, for the last couple of decades, Grandpa Joe? I that's
1: you're telling me a lot about you by that answer
2: <laughs> <laughs> I reserve the right to change my mind <laughs> <laughs>
1: excellent I, uh, I I I grant it accordingly
2: nice <laughs> uh, but
0: hey, Jeff we just want to thank you so much for your time all the great work you do with a cherished adapted series that is the standard for adapting these kind of uh pieces of work onto uh the streaming service and uh, we can't wait for season two and everything else that you got coming down the pipeline and your attention to detail as well. Thank you so
1: much. And, and thank you for uh, supporting my work and, and our work and, and for being incredible comic fans and series fans. Uh, This was a great conversation. I really had a blast and, uh, Let's uh, you know. Let's talk again uh, in, a few, in a few months if you love the show.
0: Yeah, d- well, let's definitely regroup after uh, season two hits. I would love to uh, chat it up with you. That'd be that'd be amazing. So. All right,
2: all right. Thanks. And uh, everyone, everyone who's a fan of Umbrella Academy, if you're not already doing so, make sure you're following Jeff on Instagram. Uh, from time to time, he posts some cool uh, behind the scenes stuff and just updates on the show and things like that. And uh, I think you're Jeff King TV on Instagram.
1: I am Jeff King TV.
0: Awesome. Cool. All right. Thanks again, Jeff. Hey, Gotham Dwellers. Make sure to stop everything right now and subscribe to Bat Force Radio. We can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Don't miss out. Guaranteed to satisfy all of your Batman and DC needs.